Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our text for today from the Holy Gospel, the 11th chapter of St. Matthew, these words. And now when John in prison heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and he said to Jesus, Are you the one who was to come, or should we expect another? This is our text, dear friends in Christ. Perhaps during the past week or so, some of you have seen the familiar Christmas carol with old Scrooge. It's believed by many that this short story by Charles Dickens is one of the greatest works of English literature for the season that was ever written. That fictitious story about old Ebenezer Scrooge, remember who back in 1843 is visited by the haunting ghosts of Christmas past and Christmas present and Christmas future. And because of what these ghostly apparitions show him, he has changed overnight from a mean and a greedy and a cantankerous old man into one who would bring Christmas joy and who would bring happiness into the lives of others. Though the story is certainly found wanting when it comes to some of the most profound truths of the season, namely the birth of God in the flesh, it is, we would all agree, one of the best-known literary works of the Christmas season. What most people don't know about A Christmas Carol is that it grew out of a very dark and a very dismal time in the life of Charles Dickens. At the time that he wrote it, he was a 31-year-old father of four who, at the time, thought he was at the peak of his career. His novels, The Pickwick Papers, and Oliver Twist and Nicholas Nickleby had all been popular in England, in London. But now the celebrated young writer was facing financial ruin because the last of his novels, Martin Chuzzlewit, that novel that he considered to be the best of all that he had written simply wasn't selling like the previous one had. He had overspent in the past, and now in the present, with significant debts and his wife Kate expecting their fifth child and a brother and a father who were constantly nagging him for financial help and for a loan themselves, he grew despondent about the future, didn't know what to do. One night on a long and alone walk which took him from his upper class residential area and the London suburbs into the poverty-stricken slums on the other side of the River Thames, Dickens began to panic. Fears of his own childhood resurfaced because, you see, in his own childhood, he grew up in a time of poverty. He vividly recalled his own father being in the infamous debtor's prison of London. And he recalled how he himself, as a small boy of 12, worked hard for 12 hours a day and six days a week at a warehouse table piled high with jars of black paste that he would attach labels to, an endless stream of pots that went by him, and he attached labels to them for a mere six shillings that kept him barely alive. A childhood full of helplessness, of hopelessness, abandonment, and now years later, remembering those childhood years, those ghosts of the past, Dickens was overcome by doubt, by fear, by despondency. Sort of sounds like John the Baptist in our text for today. 
John the Baptist is suddenly one who had been filled with such hope, is now suddenly filled with fear, and he becomes, because of that fear that was within him, he becomes doubtful of many of the things that have been promised to him. John the Baptist, who apparently was expecting Jesus to be saying things and to be doing things a bit differently than what Jesus was. And so John began to doubt. Are you really the one, Jesus, who is to come? Or perhaps we should be expecting someone else. Perhaps we should be expecting another. Here he is, the very man who even as a tiny unborn babe, remember in the womb of his mother Elizabeth, leaped for joy, Scripture says, when Jesus, still in the womb of the Virgin Mary, enters into the room and he leaps for joy in the womb of his mother Elizabeth. This man of fetal faith, now an adult, a prophet of God even, who doubts the very man who, as we heard last week, was clad, remember, in camel's hair, standing in the wilderness, shouting out, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The man who paused in the midst of all that he saw when he saw Jesus coming down the banks of the river Jordan, and he pointed at Jesus, and he said, behold, there he is, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of all the world. That man of ironclad confession and faith, this man whom Jesus himself speaks of as a prophet of prophets and said there has not risen anyone greater than John. And now this man, foretold of old, finds himself doubting, doubting the identity of Jesus. Once confidently confessing, prepare the way for the Lord, now he hesitates and he halts. And he whispers, are you the one? Or should we be expecting another? You know, John knew by heart all of the messianic promises of the Old Testament. John knew every prophetic star that there was in the sky. But now, after introducing Christ to the world, he comes to this point and to this place in his life where he is asking, are you the one? What happened? What brought this giant in the faith to this point of pondering perplexity? What turned this man of iron resolve into a man who sounds like a wimp of wavering uncertainty? What factors playing tricks with his sinful human nature, which he had in common with us all, led John to doubt? Well, there are two factors in John's life that were instrumental in bringing this doubt into his life. Two of the real life factors which are so which are so often instrumental in cajoling our own sinful natures to bring doubts into our life despite all the promises of God that we hear. One of those real factors in life is our circumstances. Where are we at in our lives? What's happening to us at a particular point in time? Because circumstances will cause us sometimes to doubt the very promises of God. Look at John's circumstances. How does the text today start off? It starts off by saying, now when John in prison heard what Jesus was doing. Notice where he was. John in prison. There John is sitting in a rat infested prison cell that belonged to King Herod. Why was he there? Because he had the intestinal fortitude. He had the guts to speak out about the adulterous affair that the king was having. He had the guts to publicly charge the king with adultery. The charge to which King Herod responded as one might expect. He had John incarcerated. He had him placed in the prison where in due time 
He would have John unceremoniously beheaded. But now John sits there and he's all alone in this rat-infested cell. Time passes and he begins wandering. Circumstances do that to us. What's to become of me? What's to happen? This isn't what I thought it would be. I was a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, now scurrying rats are my only audience. Silence is my only song. My life's mission, my, my career, my life's goal, everything that I did for the past 30 years of my life was preparing me for that moment and for that task alone, that was it. Could it be over so quickly? Is God done with me so soon? Or perhaps my timing was wrong. If it has been, then maybe I, I misidentified the Messiah and misled thousands of people by calling Jesus the Messiah. Is he the one? Or perhaps we should be expecting another. Imagine the haunting doubts which must have tried to terrorize the soul of John in prison. Doubts about himself, his purpose, his life, his work, and most troubling of all, doubts about Jesus. How the circumstances of life can trouble faith. As it happens to all of us, so it happened to John, and this happens to us at times too. Ask those who suddenly find their financial security in life falling to pieces because they've lost their job. Ask those whose investments turn sour. They find their funds going out, exceeding their funds that are coming in. Ask them if circumstances don't work to play tricks on our faith. Ask those whose homes, once so sturdy and strong when love was young and new, are now being dismantled little by little and piece by piece by struggle and by strife between husband and wife. Sin's circumstances can most certainly try our faith. Ask the man or the woman who's been told that they have cancer or that it might be inoperable or whatever the case might be. Ask the middle-aged mother of teenage children whose husband dies unexpectedly of a heart attack. Ask the parents whose son or daughter is tragically taken from them by disease or by an accident or by war, by an act of violence or terrorism. Ask them if life's circumstances can trouble faith, even as it did for John the Baptist sitting in Herod's prison, asking Jesus, are you the one who is to come or should we expect another? Faith Another John, the Apostle John says, is the victory that overcomes the world. But you know what happens when we take our eyes off the object of our faith, namely Jesus Christ, and we start looking at our faith as something subjective, our faith itself, and we look at faith itself rather than the object of our faith, Jesus Christ, then we can easily find ourselves living under life's circumstances instead of above them. Your faith is not in your faith. Your faith is in the object of your faith, the Lord Jesus Christ who made promises to you and most certainly will keep every promise that he has made. That brings us to the second factor in life that so often leads us to sinfully entertain doubts about Christ. Sometimes we have the wrong expectations, wrong expectations of who Jesus is. 
and what Jesus is supposed to be doing in our lives. And so our text says, when John in prison heard the works of Christ, he sent word saying, are you the one or should we be expecting another? What was it that baffled John? It was the works that he saw Jesus do. You know, John, after all, remember, was a fiery preacher. A fiery preacher who used verbs like repent and nouns like you brood of vipers, you sons of snakes. Spoke in frightening images about axes being laid to the root of the trees that are cut down and thrown into the fire. Remember that? A fiery preacher whose words melted more than one heart of stone as they were intended to do. And then after all that fiery preaching of the law of God, every word which was true and every word which was necessary to melt the hardened hearts of men, then along comes Jesus. Then along comes Jesus, the friend of sinners, forgiving sinners, the worst of them, healing them, comforting, calling them. Jesus, who was already talking about his own death, about his own dying. And you imagine John thinking, where's the winnowing fork? Where's the unquenchable fire? Where's the surge of divine power by which he's going to purge this earth of all of its evils? You see, John's preaching was absolutely right. Christ will come, and he will purge the earth with his refining fire. But John's timing was wrong. He had momentarily forgotten that Jesus had a world to save before he would have a world to judge. He had to first come as the Prince of Peace, reconciling this whole sinful world unto his Father through the sacrifice of his own body and his own blood upon the cross before he would come at the end of time as King of Kings to sit in judgment of this world on his throne. Before he works to right all of the world's wrongs, which he will, our Lord Jesus had to work to make the sinner right with God, which he did. You see, he came first in his saving grace to occupy the cross of our sins. And he comes to us now, even in this present time, to dispense the forgiveness he won for us on the cross through the word that you hear and through the sacrament that you receive, giving you the very forgiveness that he won for you, preparing you for his coming as judge at end of time. First things first, he works to right the sinner's soul before he works to right the sinner's world. Both happen, but each happens in its own hour, each in its own day and time. And today is the day of our soul's salvation. So don't expect our Lord to give you what he hasn't promised to give you yet. Here in life, here now, contrary to what many today preach, Contrary to what all too many believe, God has not promised material wealth to all of those who believe in him. He hasn't promised perfect physical health here and now to all who believe in him. He hasn't promised trouble-free and pain-free and sickness-free or struggle-free and strife-free lives in the here and now to those who believe in him. Indeed, to those who believe in him, he has said, in the world you will have tribulation. But take courage, he says. Why? Because I have overcome this world. 
all of the things you desire will in due time, in good time, in the right time, they almost certainly will be yours. Remember, no miracle saved John the Baptist from the executioner's blade. But a miracle did provide him what the executioner's blade could not rob him of. It provided him not only with the forgiveness of his sins, but it provided him with eternal life. That trouble-free life that we all long for will have its day. But sometimes that day is not yet. Rather, that day is yet to be. But it will be. It'll be when he who came as our kin comes again in glory as our king. Until then, ours is not to wait and to doubt about it all. Like John in prison, ours is to be moved from doubt, which John was, to faith. That faith which, upon hearing the word of God, as John did, knows that whatever circumstances God allows in our lives, he is still working through it all to bring us, ultimately, the victory that he's promised. In closing, I suppose I should tell you what happened to Charles Dickens on that night. When in doubt and despondency, he found himself walking near the debtor's prison in which his father had spent so many of his childhood days. As he was moved by what he saw to think more and more about those around him and their plight, he thought, I know, what about a Christmas story? And his mind began to get into the very characters of the people that he passed by on that dark stretch of London's poorest streets, the folks struggling daily with the very fears and the doubts that he had once known, and that he was reminded and revisited of. But Christmas, he thought, is only three months away. It's going to have to be a, a brief story, a brief book, and brief it was. And as the ink flowed, Dickens would periodically pause to read what he had written, and as he did, he'd weep. Then he'd laugh, he'd write some more and read some more, and he'd weep, and then he'd laugh again. And a Christmas story with old Scrooge and Bob Cratchit, the anemic Tiny Tim on crutches was born, born in the midst of Dickens' doubt and Dickens' despair. A great story which has warmed hearts and homes and fireplace hearths for a century and a half and more. But as great a story as it is, it pales, dear friends. It pales in comparison to the greatest Christmas story ever told, which we'll hear again in all of its beauty in the days to come. The true, the timeless story of the birth of God for you, of God becoming poor for you, that through his poverty, exemplified in the cross, you might have all the riches of eternity and the universe that are his. Of God in the flesh buying us out of our debtor's prison, not with gold or silver, but with his very precious body and blood. Of God forgiving and overcoming our groundless doubts and our unfounded fears about the past, about the present, about the future, because we know he's our God. And he is in control. The timeless story, as we've so often sung in this Advent season and sang again this morning, of Emmanuel, God with us. 
who indeed is God for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.